to read together the whole chapter this morning, Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 22. Uh, We began our short series in Ruth last week, and uh, we continue today. We saw last week the the bad decisions made by this man Elimelech, uh, who was uh, a member of the tribe of Judah, the leading tribe in Israel. And in the days of the judges, there's a famine, which we believe would have been Uh, a punishment from God upon his people for ongoing sin of one kind or another in the land. And Elimelech takes the foolish decision of taking his family into the foreign land of Moab instead of repenting along with his nation for their sins. And we thought last week about the terrible consequences for Elimelech's family uh, by his leading them into the the wicked land of Moab. We want to read today the the whole of Ruth chapter 1 as we see Elimelech's widow, Naomi, and his daughter-in-law, Ruth, uh, and their return to the land of Israel. So let's hear God's word together. Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law But Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. 
And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Amen. This is God's word, and you can keep that passage open as we study it together this morning. Ruth chapter 1, we focus today on verses 8 to 22. And we're thinking about the theme this morning, bitter tears and bold faith. Bitter tears, bold faith. Well, I can still remember the first uh, replica football shirt I ever owned of my favorite team. Uh, growing up in the 90s, replica football shirts really became a thing back then. And you, you, got, you wanted to make sure you got a shirt of your favorite team. But I remember the first one I had particularly because as some of my friends often reminded me, it was a fake. It was a fake. It wasn't actually a replica shirt. It was a bit of a, a knockoff, an imitation of a, rec- a replica shirt. It had some of the things that the real shirt had worn by my favorite team, but there were a lot of little differences. The name of the kit manufacturer was missing. There was no team sponsor across the middle. Uh, the team badge wasn't quite the same as the real one. It was a bit of an imitation Anyone who really knew what to look for knew that this was not the genuine article. And I was quick to report this to my parents and eventually uh, was, they kindly bought me one that was the real thing. But we look for signs of authenticity all the time, don't we? We, we sometimes in, in different parts of life, we look to see that something is the real genuine article. Uh, It's probably a while since any of us bought concert tickets, but when you buy concert tickets, you want to make sure that you've got the real thing. Uh, And usually that means that you get a ticket with a little holograph on it and uh, a barcode and so forth, and you make sure all of that's there. Uh, If you get an email and it looks a bit strange, you you want to make sure that the sender is a trustworthy uh, sender. Uh, before you click on any links that the email might contain, particularly if the email is asking you to quickly send money to help out the Nigerian royal family or something like that. You look for assurances that these things are the real things. And it's the same with Christian faith. There are telltale signs that someone's profession of faith is real. It's relatively easy, of course, to claim to be a Christian, to say that you are a Christian, that you love the Lord Jesus Christ. And Many people in our country today would say that. But if someone really is a believer, there will be telltale signs, signs that you're dealing with the genuine article. Well, in Ruth chapter 1, the intention of the writer is to leave us in no doubt that both Naomi and Ruth are genuine believers, that they have real, bold faith. In Ruth chapter 1, both of these women are on a physical journey from Moab to Bethlehem, but they're also on something of a a journey of faith, you might say. 
We saw last week, as I mentioned earlier, how Naomi's husband, Elimelech, had led his family into the pagan land of Moab uh, during a famine when he should have been back in his own land of Israel repenting of sin. Elimelech and both of his sons then died, leaving Naomi and her two daughters-in-law in dire straits. Naomi in particular, an Israelite woman in a foreign pagan land. But God has already been gracious to Naomi. And word has reached her as she is out in the fields of Moab. God's word has come to her and told her that there is, there is good news back in Israel that the famine is over. And so she is determined to go home. But she's not alone. Her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, are now by her side. And as these three women return, as they journey back to Bethlehem, the question for us is, where do they stand before God? Are they genuine believers? Do they genuinely trust God to provide for all of their needs in future or not? They have wept bitter tears, but are they full of bold faith? Well, that's the question that this chapter answers for us. And so first of all, this morning, let's think about a genuine test a genuine test, and this is really verses 8 to 14. No sooner have Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah set out on the long journey back to Bethlehem than Naomi is telling her two daughters-in-law to go back, to, to not bother going with her to Bethlehem. Look at verses 8 and 9. Naomi says to them, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, and with me, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. What she's saying is, Naomi, or sorry, Ruth, Orpah, there's, there's no point you going with me. I, I can't do anything for you. I'm going back to my land. Probably the best thing for you is that you stay in your land. Uh, you can still get remarried. You can settle down. You can have your needs taken care of here. She says in verse 8 that she, she's praying that God will show them hesed, covenant, gracious love, but she's also telling them that she thinks they should go home. But Ruth and Orpah, at least at first, both of them don't want to go. If you look at verse 10, uh, they can't bring themselves to leave Naomi. And so in verses 11 to 14, Naomi tries even harder to persuade them to go back. She says to them essentially, verses 11 to 14, Look, she says, even if I was to get married today and had two more sons, you're not going to wait for them to be old enough to get married, are you? Just so you can stay with me? That's crazy. You have to leave. Naomi knows that Orpah and Ruth need husbands to provide for them. That was the sort of society that they lived in, that the men went out and, and provided by hard work in the fields, agriculture, uh, and so forth. And women in that time and place needed men to provide security and protection and income for them. And Naomi knows that they would be foreigners going to Israel. She knows that Orpah and Ruth in Israel are going to get funny looks. They're going to get people talking about them, raising an eyebrow when they see them. They're going to probably get racist comments thrown their way. They're not going to find people who want to marry them. And even at that, she knows also that 
They would be targets for physical abuse or abuse of other kinds as well. This was the day of the judges, remember, as we thought about last week. Everybody in Israel at this time does whatever is right in their own eyes. And so, friends, Naomi here is building her case to Orpah and Ruth that they need to let her go and they need to turn back. Now, Naomi is probably the the most difficult character in the book of Ruth to know exactly where she stands and what she's thinking and what drives her at times. And, And we don't really know what Naomi's deepest motive was here. It may be that she was testing Orpah and Ruth, that she was really making sure that if they are going to come with her, that they want to come with her and that they really are going to stick with her. So a bit of I don't know, you could almost say reverse psychology from Naomi here. We don't know. But even if Naomi wasn't testing Orpah and Ruth, friends, God was testing Orpah and Ruth through the words that Naomi spoke to them. As I said already, if they were serious about going into Judah, into Bethlehem, they had to know that their chances of getting a husband were slim to nil. They had to know that they were going to live as foreigners in a land that really historically was a bitter enemy of the land that they've just come out of. They might have to put up with racism and being ostracized and ignored for the rest of their lives. And it's not like they had no other options. Uh, Naomi mentions in verse 8 that they can go back to the, the, the household of their own parents, their own mother or father. They didn't have to stay with Naomi. And of course, eventually, that's exactly what one of them does. Orpah, we're told in verse 14, kisses Naomi goodbye and turns back to Moab. It's not that Orpah perhaps didn't love Naomi, but she's not drawn towards going to Naomi's land, Naomi's people, Naomi's God. She turns back to the people and the gods that she knows in Moab. And so now it's just Ruth facing this genuine test. The choice was simple as one writer sums it up for Ruth. God plus nothing in Bethlehem or everything minus God in Moab. God plus nothing else in Bethlehem or everything minus God in Moab. And friends, if we take the words of the Lord Jesus Christ seriously and the call to trust him seriously, we face the same sort of genuine test that Ruth faced from Naomi. Jesus said in Luke 14, 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Similarly, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me He goes on, is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Friends, Jesus did not sugarcoat his message. Jesus was not interested in mass growth strategies based on whatever happened to be the most popular soundbite for people around him. He was clear from the start about the sacrifices that that go along in following him. Jesus put and still puts a genuine test of faith in front of his would-be followers. The Christian journey of faith, friends, is costly and it is testing, and not just at the beginning, but all the way through. 
If someone is attracted to Christianity because it makes them comfortable or it gives them a warm feeling or because you think it'll come in handy or because it won't do you any harm, then you don't understand the words of Jesus and the commitment that he asks for. The journey of faith is a testing journey. It's a journey in which we are called to, as Jesus said, die to ourselves and live for Christ. That means dying to our sins, dying to putting ourselves first, dying to perhaps what might have been our top priorities in life and putting Christ and his kingdom as top priority in our lives. And this can be very practical and this might in some ways seem like small things, but things that should be marks and patterns in in our lives. I won't just have another night to myself or to my family tomorrow night. I'll invite in my neighbors or friends for dinner, build a friendship with them, share the gospel with them. I won't just save money for our own household or spend it on replacing or updating this or that item in the house, though there's nothing wrong with that, but I'll tithe my money to the Lord and give generously on top of that tithe for the work of Christ's kingdom. I won't just go along with whatever workplace initiatives my colleagues have to sign up for or celebrate whatever beliefs my society considers acceptable. I'll maintain biblical convictions and live according to God's word and even if it costs me friends or promotions or respect. Have you taken this genuine test? Have you counted the cost of following Christ? And it's good for us to reconsider this test of faith monthly, yearly, whatever the case may be, knowing that the journey in which we set out on will constantly make demands of us, that we must die to ourselves and live for Christ. Ruth faced a genuine test in following Naomi, and each of us who have heard the words of Jesus today face that same test. Are you prepared to give up sin? Are we prepared to submit to God's word? Are we prepared to go where he leads and prioritize what he calls us to do? A genuine test. But secondly, we also see in this passage genuine trust. Genuine trust. And that's verses 15 to 18. Ruth's response to Naomi is very strong. It's very clear. And it leaves us in no doubt, friends, that Ruth the Moabite has become a genuine believer in the God of Israel. She makes five statements, five statements that demonstrate genuine trust. She says, first of all, verse 15, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. We'll consider that word return more in a few minutes. It's really the key word of the whole chapter. Ruth says to Naomi, look, stop Naomi, quit it. You've said all you can say. You've done your best to convince me, but I'm going nowhere. So I'm, I'm staying with you. Statement number two. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. She is literally here, we're told, clinging to Naomi as she says these things. And in verse 14, that word uh, that she clung to Naomi, it's a word that usually means marriage in Scripture. This is Ruth demonstrating in her words and in her actions that she considers Naomi her, her mother, her family, and she's not going to leave her. And statement number three from Ruth is by far the most important. She says, Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. 
And those words, friends, are remarkable words. Let's not miss the implications of these words. Ruth is a Moabite widow. She has grown up in a land in which she has been surrounded by idolatry from the first moment of her life, including the idolatry of child sacrifice. That's how pagan a land Moab was. No one in her land has been interested in telling her about the God of Israel. No one has been teaching her about the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, promising steadfast love to them for generations. (coughs) The only witness that she has had to the grace of God has been the inconsistent, imperfect witness of her now dead Hebrew husband who had been sinning by coming into the land of Moab in the first place. And yet, friends, despite all of those obstacles, God has intervened. God has shown grace to Ruth. And as imperfect as Naomi and her family were, Ruth has seen or heard something from Elimelech or from her husband or from Naomi over the years. She has seen some sign of faith. She has heard some statement about the God of Israel. And she has placed her faith in the God of Israel. Let's just remember, friends, no one is doing any miracles in the book of Ruth. No one is seeing angels. No one is having a vision of God. The only way that Ruth has come to faith in God is through people, however imperfectly, however inconsistently, witnessing to Ruth about the grace of God. And that should be so encouraging to us today. Sometimes what holds us back from sharing our faith, witnessing to our friends or family or neighbours is we think, well, I won't know what to say. Or "I, I don't know enough of the Bible. But friends, if God could use the witness of Elimelech and his family who were sinning by being in Moab in the first place, he can use your witness and my witness, however imperfect it might be. And Ruth's language here, my people, my God, that's covenant language. That's language that God himself used in scripture over and over again. Leviticus 26 verse 12, God says, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. And so you hear how Ruth is responding to that. She says to Naomi, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. She is responding to God's gracious offer here. Ruth was not stepping out on this journey of faith just because she loved Naomi. She was stepping out with genuine trust in the covenant God of Israel. Her fourth statement, she says, where you die, I will die, and where you are buried, I will be buried. She says, now that's very solemn. She says, Naomi, this is it for me. I'm going where you're going. I'll be buried right next to you, somewhere in the land of Israel. And the last thing that she says, may the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Those are very solemn words. This is Ruth taking an oath of loyalty to Naomi, to be faithful to Naomi and to be faithful, excuse me, to Naomi's God. And at this point, Naomi finally gives up. Look at verse 18. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more. 
Again, friends, Ruth's choice was Yahweh, God, plus nothing in Bethlehem, or everything minus God in Moab. And she chose God and his grace. And it's a challenge to consider the strength of faith that some of the Old Testament believers like Ruth had. Believers who had less knowledge than us. Believers who didn't live to to hear the name of Jesus. Who didn't know what he had done on the cross. That he had risen again. Who didn't see Jesus come and do all his miracles. Ruth didn't know anything of that. She hadn't read the words of the Apostle Paul. That there is no Jew or Gentile slave or free male or female. Because we're all one in Christ Jesus. Ruth didn't have any of those benefits. But she believed. She genuinely believed. One writer says, Ruth's trust may not have been well informed, but it was real. It was real. She didn't need to know the Ten Commandments or the Lord's Prayer or the shorter catechism off by heart. But she still genuinely believed in the God who had graciously saved her. And that was what enabled her friends to make what otherwise would have seemed a ridiculous, foolish decision as a Moabite. To go to Israel and live as a foreigner with her widowed mother-in-law. You see, genuine faith in God will lead to us changing our priorities, changing our thinking and changing our actions. Do we genuinely trust God? Have we genuinely turned from sin and in faith turned on to God? Well, that will show itself again in the way that we live our lives and the priorities that we have. Young people, in a world full of people and attitudes and pressures that tempt you to turn from Christ, are you willing to confess Christ as your Saviour and Lord? That's a sign of genuine, bold faith. Parents, does Jesus' covenant love for you motivate you for patience and love and perseverance with family worship and prayers for our children's salvation? That's a sign of genuine, bold faith. Church members in Dremore, out of God's abundant, generous love for us, do we go out of our way to show that same love to one another as a sign of genuine, bold faith? Do we have our priorities and our schedule lined up in such a way that there are opportunities for us to speak of that bold faith to others? Does our bold faith have an impact on our finances and our time And our priorities in life. These are all signs friends. That we have the kind of genuine trust. Bold faith. That Ruth had. That her God is our God. So we've seen a a genuine test. And we've seen Ruth's genuine trust. Thirdly and finally today. I want to think about a genuine testimony. A genuine testimony. And that's verses 19 to 22. After a long journey, Naomi and Ruth finally arrive, no doubt worn out physically and emotionally. They're back in Bethlehem, in God's land, with God's people. And the people of Bethlehem are quite shocked to see Naomi. We read that the whole town was stirred, it says. They were, this, was, this was the talk of the town. If they'd had social media in those days, Naomi would have been trending on Twitter. Everyone's talking about it. Naomi's back. She's back after more than 10 years away. Some of the women, maybe some of the women that Naomi has known her whole life, 
Some of them are looking at Naomi and they're not even sure if it is Naomi. Look at verse 19. Is this Naomi? But look at her. She's unrecognizable, not just in how she looks, but in how she sounds. In Northern Ireland, people would be saying, look at the state of her. She's not the woman she was 10 or 12 years ago. And look what she says to these women. Do not call me Naomi, she says. The, the name Naomi, as some of our members here in Dremore may know, the name Naomi means sweet or pleasant. Instead, she says, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. You ever had that really bitter taste in your mouth? Maybe, uh, maybe you bite into a piece of fruit and it's, oh, it's bitter, it's, it's not what it should be. Uh, maybe you're a bit too liberal with the vinegar in your chips and you get a bit of a, a sour taste in your mouth. Well, that's how Naomi says she feels in her heart, in her soul. She's bitter. Look at verse 21. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. So there's two words she describes herself, bitter and empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now whatever you might think of that, friends, this is Naomi's genuine testimony to her friends. Everyone crowds around her. What has been going on, Naomi? What's happened? She says, God has left me bitter, empty, and he has brought disaster upon me. Not perhaps the most uplifting testimony. But friends, it's a genuine testimony. At least she's honest. She tells a community of God's people exactly how she feels. Bitter, empty, discouraged, heartbroken. And I want you to notice this as well. In the midst of this very, uh, this very somber testimony, she still acknowledges God in the midst of all of this. Twice she calls him the Almighty. The word is Shaddai in Hebrew, and most writers believe that, name, that means God is all-powerful, almighty. And she also refers to him as Yahweh. You see the capital letters, Lord Yahweh. And there's recognition, friends, even in Naomi's bitterness and in her emptiness. It's the Almighty that has done this. It's not, it's not some fluke accident. It's not just a series of unfortunate events that have happened to me. This is God who has been at work. This is God who has allowed this to happen to me. Maybe she doesn't understand it. Maybe she's still hurt by it. But she acknowledges Yahweh in control of her life. And if Naomi feels empty and hurt and broken, friends, and bitter, at least she's telling the right people about it. At least she's in the right place. She's among God's people, a community, a, a small group, if you like, of women in her part of the kingdom of God. At least she can now get their encouragement, get their prayers, get their counsel. At least she can begin to heal up in God's place among God's people. And friends, that's exactly what the church is to be about even today. This is one of the functions of the church. We're going to, God willing, in the autumn, we're going to begin to think about what is the church and the nature of the church. 
uh, as we hopefully come out of the pandemic and begin to look ahead to the future and what God has for us here in Dremore, we're going to think about the nature of the church. And one of the main purposes of the church is to bear each other's burdens, to share the load of life's hurts and trials and pains together. Doesn't mean you have to be standing up on a Sabbath morning and telling everyone every painful detail of your life, but that there are some people at least in your church family, if not in your uh, biological family, that you're sharing the trials of life with, asking for prayer, the bitterness and the triumphs, whatever it may be. Numi doesn't just tell everyone in Bethlehem, oh, I'm fine. Hard 10 years, but sure, what can you do? No, she's honest. She has a genuine testimony. And yet in her honesty, Naomi has missed some things, hasn't she? She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. And of course, that was a a devastating trial for her to go through. But God hasn't just emptied Naomi. He hasn't abandoned her. He hasn't taken away everything from her. For one thing, he's brought her safely back to Bethlehem. And he's blessed her with a loyal, genuine fellow believer in her daughter-in-law, Ruth. I sometimes feel a bit sorry for Ruth, you know, as Naomi stands here and says, I'm I'm totally empty. I'm totally broken. God's taken everything. And Ruth's standing there thinking, well, I'm still here. God hasn't completely removed every blessing from Naomi. And as I say, Naomi, she's a complex character. The jury may be out on where exactly she is spiritually here. Is she blaming God or beseeching God? Is she showing strong faith or weak faith? Maybe to some degree, we don't quite know. But here's what we can say. Naomi's testimony is genuine and honest. And she doesn't leave God out of the picture. Perhaps some of you here in the room this morning or listening online... Perhaps you yourself are going through a time of grief or heartache or anxiety or concern. Dear friend, God Almighty sees that. He knows all about that. He still cares for you. Cast your cares upon him, the psalmist says, for he cares for you. Don't lose sight in the midst of even bitterness that you might go through. Don't lose sight of God's grace, his love for you in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, by the way, who tasted the bitterness of that wine vinegar on that sponge as he hung on the cross, dying in our place for our sins. Remember earlier I mentioned the most important word of this chapter is the word return. Just look at how the writer finishes chapter 1, verse 22. Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Did you see that? Ruth the Moabite returned. Ruth the Moabite had never been in Bethlehem before, so why does the writer say that she returned to Bethlehem? Well, friends, what the writer is saying is that Ruth, the genuine believer, has now truly come home. In Hebrew, the word return doesn't just mean to change direction physically, it often also means to change direction physically to turn around, to change the way you've been living and walk back to God. That's what Naomi, the older believer, has done. That's what Ruth, the new believer, has done. They've turned their backs 
on a life of sin away from God's presence away from God's people and they've now repented and come back their testimony may be bitter but their faith is real and just just in a word as we close notice the last line of the chapter they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest Barley harvest, this was late April or early May. This was the springtime, a time of hope, a time of new blessing appearing in the fields. And maybe the writer here is giving us a little clue. Maybe, just maybe, new blessing is going to appear in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. And friends, if today you, under God's, as you hear God's word, you're led to return to God. Maybe there's something in your life you need to turn your back upon, some sin, or maybe there's something that has been weighing you down and you need to turn and bring it to the Lord. In doing so, friends, you can be assured that among God's people, in God's place, God will provide new blessing and new help for your heart this day. Amen.